Hey everyone, on this installment of the Primate Cast, a blast from the somewhat distant past with Drs. Chiatan and Fred Berkovich. Evolution. Communication. Cognition. Conservation. Behavior. Primatology. Primatology. Typically primates. Become the monkey. Welcome everyone to the Primate Cast. This is podcast number 63, and although it's being released on Saturday, February the 19th, 2022, the interview was actually recorded way back in March of 2015. I do admit to a modicum of shame for having sat on this one for so long, but I'm more than happy to be able to share it with you all today. So you might notice that some of the details um, that you'll hear are a little out of date in this podcast, but the themes are all relevant today as ever. Um, so the setting for this interview was one of the symposia for our primatology and wildlife science graduate program at Kyoto University, where students and wildlife professionals gathered to share their research and efforts towards conservation, environmental stewardship, and advocacy. At the time, Chia Tan was working in San Diego Zoo's Institute for Conservation Research, and so I took the opportunity to talk with her, among other things, about the role of zoos in conservation. As will become really obvious during the interview, um, Chi is absolutely passionate about, passionate about people and nature. And though trained as a scientific researcher, she's been a driver of numerous conservation initiatives that have a strong human element to them. So we talk about two uh, in this interview. TIPS, uh, which is the Training in Primatology series, uh, which helps motivated young conservationists and researchers from primate range countries attend international training programs and conferences. And then the Little Green Guards, which aims to foster nature appreciation in children through education, reflection, and action, with a hope to inspire and prepare the next generation of Earth's guardians. Chia remains the VP and Global Program Director for Little Green Guards, but she's also VP and Treasurer, treasurer for Ludi International, which is a U.S. nonprofit dedicated to preserving biological diversity on Earth um, by inspiring and empowering people through uh, scientific research, education, and capacity building, and She's also adjunct professor at, uh, of anthropology at San Diego State University and um, at the School of Agroforestry, Engineering and Planning at Tongren University in Guizhou, China. Um, she sits on the IUCN Species Survival Commission's Primate Specialist Group as well. And I'm probably missing a few things here. Um, she's a really active person, um, but I hope she'll forgive me. Now, in the interview, um, you'll also hear from Dr. Fred Berkovich, who previously worked at San Diego Zoo um, Wildlife Alliance's Behavioral Biology Division before becoming professor at Kyoto University's Primate Research Institute, um, where we worked together until his retirement in 2017. And if you want to learn more about Fred, uh, you can go way back in time and listen to the Primate Cast number two, which we did with all SciCast faculty members, which was published on April the 12th, 2012. Um, but Fred had invited Chia to the symposium uh, as their time at the San Diego Zoo overlapped, and he thought she'd be a really great role model uh, and presenter for our own graduate students in the program. And, and I definitely agreed. So kind of coming full circle to the idea of zoos, before we jumped into the uh, interview in a second, um, when Fred was here at Kyoto University, he was teaching some undergraduate courses in conservation biology and zoo biology. And so when he retired in 2017, which is a couple of years after this interview that you'll hear, I actually inherited those courses myself and I'm still teaching them today. So in some ways, talking about zoos and conservation with Fred and Chia kind of turned out to be a little bit of foreshadowing for my own future, um, though I didn't know it at the time. 
Um, so I'd love to be able to have this conversation again with them. So Chia, Fred, if you're listening, I hope we can we can have a round two, a round two sometime, uh, or in, in person again if this pandemic pandemic ever leaves us alone. Um, in the meantime, though, here's my interview from March 2015 uh, with Drs. Chia Tan and Fred Berkovich, starting with Fred giving us a rundown of San Diego Zoo's path to becoming a leading conservation organization. In 1916, there was a Pan American exhibit around Balboa Park in San Diego, and there were some exotic animals at the exhibit, and that became the nexus for the San Diego Zoo. So they'll be celebrating their 100th anniversary in 2016. And so they began as a regular zoo with collecting a lot of animals from around the world. And then in 1975, they began the Center for Research of Endangered Species, um, headed by Dr. Kirk Bernerska. And one of the topics that he addressed was, what, do we, what is the role of zoos in terms of conservation by trying to breed endangered species in captivity, possibly release them? Where do they fit into the bigger scheme of things? Then the Center for Reproduction of Endangered Species ended up morphing over time into the Institute for Conservation Research, what it is now, um, which is basically the research department at the San Diego Zoo. So I came on staff shortly after Alan Dixon became the director, and I was in the Division of Behavioral Biology and met Chia, who joined the staff shortly after me. Um, at the time, Alan Dixon was trying to push the research part more in terms of linking the zoo with field conservation efforts. Mm -hmm. And so Chia came on board as one of the lead people for a new program in conservation dealing with postdocs. And she was one of the first postdocs hired actually to specialize in field work related to the collection in the zoo. So, yeah, Chia, um, can you just maybe give us a summary or a rundown of what kind of your role at the zoo is? And, and I, as you mentioned in your talk yesterday, there might be some changing, I don't know, foci of the, the center as well. Okay. Um, I came on board in 2001, and as Fred mentioned, I was one of the first set of postdocs hired uh, by the San Diego Zoo to work in the field um, and to carry out field research and at the same time to incorporate many as many conservation activities as possible um, in the areas in the geographic areas that we work and so I was hired to work in China even though prior to uh, getting the position at San Diego Zoo I had never been to China at <laughs> that point um, my prior research experience was in Madagascar study, studying lemurs. So um, to me, China presented an exciting area um, where I could really broaden my, my research horizons. Um, I, before, going to, before accepting the job at the San Diego Zoo, I actually consulted my graduate advisor at the time, Patricia Wright, and I was asking her, um, whether or not I should take the job because I, at the time, I really wanted to stay with lemur research and lemur conservation. Um, but my advisor, um, Pat Wright, was saying um, with every, with any great primatologist that, you know, one should always try to 
learn as many different species as possible, to not have such a tunnel vision with, or just be so focused on one group of primates. So I thought that made a lot of sense. So I said, okay, I'll take the job um, at, uh, with the San Diego Zoo and travel to China to learn a new species. Um, so that's kind of how I started. Um, and then um, I was in the field program, so, but Fred was in charge of behavioral biology. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was under the supervision of Valen Dixon, the director. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's interesting you mentioned um, Pat Wright and kind of directing you in this, in this way because we had a previous interview with Noel Roll. Oh, um, okay. And he was saying how when he was a graduate student with her, he uh -huh. had this idea of the pictorial guide, which ended up being the pictorial guide, which uh -huh. is very obviously famous and influential work. But uh -huh. so she was very supportive of, yes, you need to go do that now. Right. So almost uh -huh. in the same way, these, I mean, these are really important issues too. So, uh -huh. um, yeah, so can you, maybe the San Diego Zoo is probably something that stand, a zoo that stands out for many people as a very active zoo and, and the name often pops up. So can you maybe talk about their their efforts uh, currently and how you see like the role of a modern zoo now in in conservation for example um right now our zoo is um, heavily involved with conservation efforts in many different countries throughout the world i think the last count was over 100 countries something like that and um and some of us, we actually have research projects in these countries, and then others, we are, are um, other projects, it's more or less we provide either technical um, advice or financial um, sponsorship to these in situ projects. Um, for me, I really think all modern zoos should be more involved with educating the public. We have the animal resources. We, we can really use our uh, captive population to educate our guests, people who um, either go, come through our, our gates or even um, reaching out to uh, more people in the world via different kinds of online um, platforms. Mm -hmm. yeah, one of the other changes which is going on with zoos and the San Diego Zoo and the research unit have really been pushing this is to um, use zoos more for education and conservation more than animals. And so there's people also studying ecology and habitats and plants themselves. So it's, zoos have adopted much more of an ecosystem approach in terms of saving habitats and saving species, but a lot of times it is targeted on the charismatic megafauna, the ones that people like, because mm -hmm. that brings in the interest level of people to help try save things. Mm -hmm. um, so when people think of zoos, they usually think of animals that are in cages. But like she was saying, there's a lot more now that are actually zoos are moving away from that. Mm -hmm. In fact, the, bar, the um, circus just announced they're not gonna have any more elephants. Yesterday, yeah, the Barnum and oh, Bailey Circus wow. said that, and I forgot which, in like a year or two, they're going to stop the elephant acts. They said the times have changed, the world's changed, we're not going to have elephant acts at the circus anymore. 
So it's I mean, we're not talking about circus, talking about zoos here, but that just came up in the news recently. I thought, yeah, wow, boy, the world is changing. So, Fred, uh, just a brief question. You're, you're now teaching at Kyoto University conservation biology and zoo biology. So kind of quite relevant to this conversation, but also um, your history with the San Diego Zoo. And so I just wonder how you, you link your experience there to your classroom now. Okay. So when I um, came on board um, in charge of the behavioral biology unit, one of the charges that I sort of had was to move outside primates because we had hired Alan Dixon was a primatologist. She was a primatologist. I was, came on board as a primatologist. I wanted to work on other species. One of the first ones I started with was the koalas. Mm -hmm. So there was another person who came on as a postdoc studying koalas. San Diego Zoo has a long history and a good track record of breeding koalas and sharing them with other zoos and educating the public about koalas. So to me, it was an ideal species to link the zoo with the wild. Um, we had some keepers go out to a field site we developed in Australia. Um, that work is continuing with the zoo. In fact, they've just built a new exhibit called Outback, Australian Outback, mm -hmm. um, to promote more conservation in Australia and the connection between the zoo and the wild. Mm -hmm. um, there were other species, giraffe and elephant, that I worked on too. And that created, to me, a solid foundation for when I came here to the program at PRI to develop these concepts in terms of conservation biology and zoo biology which were not high on the radar at all yeah. in the Japanese educational system. Um, so one of the things that I'm trying to do now is raise the interest level of students at Kyoto University in terms of conservation and the potentials that zoos have to provide information to people as well as to link to the wild. Mm -hmm. It fits really well into the missions of the, the program that we're all here for with this uh, right, exactly. climatology and wildlife science course, which two of the three outputs are conservationists and so people with skills for curation and um, edu public education and outreach and things. Right, which is why Chia is actually one of the perfect examples to the mm -hmm. students that are coming here uh, for this seminar in primatology and wildlife science because one of the goals is to get people who are more knowledgeable, who have a good solid background in conservation science to work at zoos. Mm -hmm. okay. And then here we have Chia. And I want to come back to you, Chia, okay. because in your uh, role at the zoo, so now you're dealing with so many different groups and different types of uh, organizations and individuals mm -hmm. uh, in order to kind of push these conservation activities. So mm -hmm. I just wonder if you can, maybe quite different from what a regular academic would be dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. So maybe you have some insight into that. Well, one of the advantages of um, working um, for a zoo is that we have a lot of flexibility. Um, we also encounter people from all walks of life. Um, we, we have a lot of resources, um, even financial resources at times. And so um, when I, uh, just to, to start out my postdoctoral project, as I mentioned, I was venturing um, into an area where I was not familiar with. So um, to start my project in China, I had to make the first step of contacting somebody in China who would have a field site that I could go, um, go to. It wasn't like um, my project in Madagascar because my graduate advisor, Patricia Wright, 
started a national park in Madagascar, so it was very easy for me to go mm-hmm. to Mafan to do mm-hmm. my project. But when I um, was hired on by the zoo to work in China, I had to contact people. I had to know who's doing what and which species occur in which area and what what's um, what's really feasible for me. So that's how I kind of started my p- partnership um, development in in the work that I that I um, that I'm doing. Um, so really, is a process just a process of um, personal you know uh, learning and how to go about contacting people, um, how to go about forming partnerships and. Um, and sometimes I had to deal um, in the in the process of doing that. Sometimes I have to deal with nature reserve folks. Sometimes I have to deal with academic uh, scientists. Sometimes it, it's other zoo um, conservation groups. Um, so it's constantly changing, and I'm constantly learning. You know what? Eventually, I realized that different people with different jobs they have different needs they have their different objectives so i um to say that i want to collaborate um i must be able to in the process of collaboration i have to also think about what are they what do they need mm-hmm. with people um working at universities oftentimes it's publications for them it's um as you know publish or perish so Writing papers, collecting data to them is, is very important, but not so much when it comes to educating the public. Mm-hmm. Um, but with uh, other conservation agencies, it's more about, oh, let's publicize our work so more people know what we're doing. So there is a lot more um, promotion, self-promotion, that kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but with zoos, I think um, we want to really try to let the public know that not only are we really great at maintaining animals, at breeding animals, but we also are very serious about in-situ conservation and about saving endangered species and about um, making sure that we, we still have um, enough wild places and wild species left for future generations. And as I was just going to say, there's one other attribute and advantage um, that Chia has had in terms of the conservation, which is the long-term commitment, the passion to keep it going. Because if you have to constantly change where you're going and what you're doing, you can't develop the relationships that Chia was just explaining, take time to integrate your team, mm-hmm. to get this collaborative effort going, if you're going to switch every two years. So she has been there um, in doing the China work and the Madagascar work, and she's been working in Vietnam too, in different places consistently for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Teamwork building. Yes. Right. So in your talk yesterday, you put a lot of emphasis on conservation through education. And so it seems like maybe for you, this is absolutely the most important step. And so in that context, um, you talked about two different initiatives that you set up. Uh, there may be more, but I want to start mm-hmm. with those two. So mm-hmm. tips. Tips training in primatology series. Um, it's a capacity building program. It's um, a program, kind of like a fast track program. 
um, for in-country people, for primary uh, habitat country people who haven't had any formal training in primatology. And as you know, um, I started the program in Asia and many countries in Asia at the university level, there are just no primary cur curricula. Um, there, there might be some classes about biodiversity conservation, but really there is just no primary courses. So I started my first TIPS course was just teaching the fundamentals of primatology. Mm -hmm. you know, what is a primate? Mm -hmm. you know, all these, the basics that we learn in Primate 101, I, um, with help from one of my colleagues, um, Sylvia Atzelis, we started the course with 10 students and just did 10 days of lecturing. Plus, um, we, we also added um, in-situ learning. We took students out to the field. Um, we took students to local natural history museum, um, and we, we now try to connect them with in-country researchers mm -hmm. who are involved in primate, uh, primate studies. So really it's just to provide the basis mm -hmm. for these students so that they then um, have a, a basic uh, understanding of what, what primatology is about and they know where to go to obtain more resources, either it's uh, references online or people that they know where to contact mm -hmm. if they want to collaborate. And um, so it's, it's just providing the basics for these students. And um, it was all funded using my own um, research and grant money. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, after the first TIPS uh, workshop, I, would, I didn't even know if I had the means to continue. But the, the feedback I received was overwhelming and I met some really fantastic students who are just so dedicated. And I just thought, I need to, I need to continue because <laughs> otherwise, you know, this kind of training and capacity building and mentorship that I provide um, cannot just stop at just with just in ten days. Mm -hmm. I need to continue to build up their their um, um, their technical and professional capacities mm -hmm. and then try to empower them to move on to the next level. So that's how TIPS started and then a year and a half later we had the second TIPS which was about um, learning how to do behavioral observation. Mm -hmm. And at the time I was working very closely with the Singapore Zoo and Singapore Zoo, as you probably know, has an excellent primate collection. Um, so we did two weeks intensive behavioral observation training, plus we assigned students, uh, participants to work in teams. So that helped them to learn how to work, to build up uh, team efforts. And then they also had to design a simple project that they can accomplish in a week. 
And at the end, they present it. They, they learn how to analyze data, present, and basically learn, learn what it is that we do as, um, as scientists. So. And then some of these people now we're meeting at International Primates Law and yes, conferences. Yes. And so because all the, we don't just provide um, instructions, we also do, as I mentioned, a lot of mentorship mm -hmm. and a lot of just provide encouragements. Um, many of these students have expressed to me that they just feel so alone and um, insignificant in in what they do, they have they get no confirmation or right. affirmation from either their their professors or their friends or even their family members. Um, they just just they feel very much alone in in mm -hmm. their profession. So um, what I do is I provide encouragement and also. Um, tell them about different opportunities and whenever there is a conference or grants um, opportunities, I just email all this kind of, all the information to them and it's up to them to, to take it on, to make that effort to apply or to, um, to write an abstract for a conference, to submit to a conference. So um, many of these students are very motivated and it's also because um, TIPS, the program is different from a lot of other capacity building in that I only, I take on these students through recommendations. I see. I don't just take on whoever. Okay. I want the, the, the leaders. Yeah. Um, the, I want these students to be leading the conservation and research movement in their own country. So I help foster these students and um, because they already show a great deal of potential, then it's, it's easy for me to just provide the resources that they need, the opportunities they need, and then help them along with their career. Right. So presumably one of the reasons why they face the, the isolation kind of problems mm -hmm. in their young careers is, uh, especially in areas of Asia and Africa, the societal context doesn't really value maybe the biodiversity and researching biodiversity. So mm -hmm. TIPS is about training people already very interested in that topic, but you also have initiatives to start a little bit earlier and maybe change some of these societal values in the future. So can you tell us about Little Green Guards? Little Green Guards. So Little Green Guards um, is a program tailored to children in the primary school level. And these children oftentimes live in rural areas adjacent to protected areas. So um, it's usually in these areas where people are living alongside with all these endangered species that we try to conserve or um, uh, really uh, critical habitats that we try to conserve. But then, but these, the, these people have no way of advancing their um, socioeconomic standing bec just because by virtue of living in such a remote places. Um, the, the education system a lot of time is very backwards because no teacher, no teachers would want, no good teachers would want to be teaching in these um, rural schools. 
So children, oftentimes, when if they're born、um, into that kind of、uh, economic situation, they they have no opportunities, no way of getting out of this、um, this rural circumstances. It's becoming a vicious circle. So they're poor, and they continue to be poor because they lack the education opportunities. And so the Little Green Guards program not only teaches these children. Um, biology or、uh, things about different species that occur in、um, very close to where they live, but also teach them extra skills. Teach them that the world is actually bigger than their village, and so、um, that's that's kind of it's it's a way to enrich their lives and to empower them, so that eventually they will they will be. So, so that they stay interested in learning, and then hopefully that will get them out of their um, very um, difficult、uh, circumstances, and they、um, eventually would want to care about conserving the the animals、um, in in their hometown, and they feel proud to have these animals. That are actually some of these animals occur nowhere else, but you know where they are from.、Mm -hmm. But there's there there is a big issue in terms of the conservation world because there's a lot of focus on education, and there's a lot of lack of recognition of the ties between economy and ecology and conservation. And so one of the cool things about the little green guards is you're starting at the young level. Not only to educate the people in terms of what's going on, but also to help them economically. And a lot of conservation NGOs, the education money is more posters, adults monitor the animals, but monitoring the animals won't save the animals unless the people who are living right outside the park see a value in trying to work to save the animals that live next door. So one of the cool things that she is doing is actually trying to get funds, trying to get more support at education at the at, at the grammar school level. Which is not that common. Yeah, and maybe just one final thought here、uh, to go back to a conversation we had、mm -hmm. yesterday, but also based on Fred's earlier comment about charismatic animals.、Yeah. One of the the small experiments you did with your surveys was to find out which animals in China, so with、mm -hmm. uh, the children, which animals、uh, they kind of prefer, they really like, and monkeys actually feature quite highly、mm -hmm. on that list. Whereas maybe in in other places in Asia and Africa, monkeys would be either food or pests. In a lot of cases, giraffe weren't even on the list. Giraffe weren't. Giraffe weren't on your list. <laughs> well, <laughs> another thing about the listing that I found out was not really about what they really prefer, is what they know, and、um, as I mentioned to you yesterday, their animal vocabulary is actually quite restricted.、Um, also because. Being living in a rural area,、um, not having good teachers and not having、um, perhaps their parents are illiterate,、um, so they actually、um, the the children that I interviewed that I surveyed in the rural areas in China, comparatively speaking, they are much more behind in、uh, children. In comparison to children of the same grade level in city in the city situation, so when I asked them to write down to list、um, three animals that they like the best, and then 
um, they actually had a hard time. Many children had a hard time writing. They didn't even know how to write very well. So of course, what they wrote down were characters they wrote in Chinese characters. Um, in whatever is the simplest. So, for example, giraffe, yeah. you know, requires three characters, and so it's something that it's <laughs> it's difficult yeah. for them. So, um, I'm not saying that the survey that I did that I did had real scientific value, but it allowed me to gain an insight into the world to understand, mm -hmm. okay, it's actually not, not the animal, uh, not the bi biology, not the conservation that is really critical, a, a critical issue here. It's their education. Mm -hmm. And when people don't get the quality education, um, and, and for us to go in and say, oh, you need to conserve these animals and do this and do that. I mean, to them, that's completely foreign. When they are not, they, we're not even at the same level in terms of speaking or understanding the world. So um, what we need to fix first is the education. It's not so much conservation. It's the education. And then at, on top of education, to cultivate a sense of empathy, respect for nature, for wildlife. That's the basis, but we're not, we don't, many of the um, conservation agencies that um, we know about, they, they don't even tackle that basic, that fundamental, um, the, the most, the essence of things. They don't even go to that far. And they just start printing posters and doing printing t-shirts and then tell people to save animals. That is just completely crazy because it has no effect on um, it, these, the, the local people really do not even understand. So I think what we need to tackle is really the fundamental issues, which is education and, and also this um, this feeling of empathy and appreciation for nature. Okay, which um, is just you know, which is one of the parts which is difficult, just in terms of how people view scientists. Because scientists are supposed to be the objective seekers of the truth, but any scientist that involves in conservation and working with animals is not simply an objective seeker of the truth. Like she was saying, they've got to have a passion for animals. They have to like the animals. They have to share that passion. They have to let other people know. Um, about what is next door. The irony is that there are a lot of, of places in the United States where the little green guards would actually work because there are a lot of urban children in the States who don't know anything about the wild animals and people in the United States somehow think like the Chinese children living next door to the park must know about animals and they don't. So there's a real disconnect between what some people think should be going on and what is actually happening on the ground. Yeah, and they, you know, the world thinks other than the Chinese children, think the, the you know the international community thinks that all Chinese should love pandas, giant <laughs> pandas, but yeah. it's not so. And also, they sh they think probably all Chinese know that the giant panda occurs in China. No, it's not so. And the little ones are cute. <laughs> <laughs> they are cute. So so you have to save them because the little ones are cute. 
Well, at the end of your talk, you had a, a quote. Mm -hmm. Can you just maybe share that quote with us so we can end? Oh, um, something about I, to understand. I can't to really. To um, but yeah, to, for us to conserve anything, we need to first love, to have a love, um, have the, the affection for, for the things that we want to save. Um, and with animals, I think, you know, the, the, the human animal relationship is not so, we, we shouldn't think of it as so foreign. Um, the human animal relationship should just be, it's, it should be parallel to human human relationship. For, for um, mother and infant to bond, they need to have that time, that close um, interaction, and they have to basically have the opportunity to get to know one another. And I mean, even though there is a, um, a genetic, a, a, you know, innate kind of um, bonding that exists between mother and infants, but with anything, you know, for us to get to know one another, even human, you know, person to person, there, it, there has to be the time to bond and then has to be an extended period of time. So um, when we, if we try to connect people to wildlife or to animals, um, we need to provide that opportunity. We need to have that to give, give people the chance to engage. And so um, with, with the Little Green Guards program, that's exactly that. We first need to give to tell these children, look, you have all these amazing animals in, in the forest behind your, your house, and let's go see them. That, you know, and falling in love is not something that I can, I can just tell them to, you know, fall in love with wildlife. It's something that they must feel themselves. And that comes, you know, sometimes it's quite magical. It's not something that I can teach. It's what they take in, what they feel. Well, Dr. Chia Tan, thanks for joining us on the Pranacast. Thank you. And Fred, thank you. Thank you, Andrew. We'll look forward to hearing from you guys again. You have been listening to The Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to all things primatology and wildlife research, to the conservation of species, and to the dissemination of scientific knowledge. The podcast is brought to you by the Center for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology at the Kyoto University Primate Research Institute. Visit us online at theprimatecast.com and follow our social media feeds on Facebook and Twitter at The Primate Cast.